Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. Hey friends, looking for some great business content other than right here on Accelerate? Then check out C-Suite TV and watch in-depth interviews with business content for C-Suite leaders and entrepreneurs, including an interview with me, your favorite podcast host. And it's all on demand. Watch and get insider secrets on demand by going to csuitetv.com. That's c-suitetv.com. Business insights on demand. Okay, let's do the show. It's time to accelerate. This is Andy. Welcome to episode 442 of Accelerate, where I hold in-depth conversations with today's leading experts in sales, marketing, and leadership six days a week. Hey, we all hit slumps from time to time, and if you're struggling with how to get your sales back on track, then go to accelerate.fm forward slash spark and get my free ebook, How to Spark a Sales Turnaround. I've asked over 400 sales experts how they would turn the corner on slumping sales, and I've compiled their recommendations into a practical step-by-step guide that you can use to accelerate your sales today. So don't wait. Go to accelerate.fm forward slash spark, that's S-P-A-R-K, to get your free copy of How to Spark a Sales Turnaround. Joining me on the show is Ray Makala. Ray is the Chief Customer Officer of the Sales Readiness Group, a leading B2B sales and sales management training company focused on improving the performance of sales teams. Now, do you realize there's over $2.2 billion spent every year on sales training in the United States, and yet surveys show wide dissatisfaction with the results among C-level managers, sales leaders, and sales professionals? Well, with Ray, we're going to talk about the six reasons why corporate sales training fails, and we're going to hear his recommendations for how to fix it. But first, Ray... What do you consider the biggest challenge facing sales organizations today? Well, you know, I think they run into a, a, a lot of challenges, especially as we, we look at the new year and as, as we're going into planning for 2017. Um, but, you know, I think as we've seen over the last few years, customers continue to get smarter and more engaged before uh, the salesperson gets involved. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much noise out there when the client is, is more informed and there are a lot more people competing for the same dollar. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think we're all getting inundated with the automated emails, the spam engines and uh, <laughs> shocking. You know, yes. Right. So trying to differentiate yourself beyond that, that uh, noise, as well as engage it with the customer in a meaningful way. I, I think that's probably the biggest challenge is how do we make uh, our role meaningful and, and how do we matter to our customers? I, I agree 100. Um, percent And I didn't. You didn't. Even, you weren't even aware I was going to ask you that question. So, <laughs> so what's the answer? Right. So I think it means that we need to be better at the way that we engage. And the way we think of that is, uh, and this whole idea of you know being an advisor, but mm-hmm. 
we need to understand our client's business before we pick up the phone and make the phone call and say, hey, tell me what keeps you up at night. Uh, you know, as I had a client years ago respond to that question and said, you know, I sleep just fine at night and my sleep habits really aren't any of your uh, business. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had that and, answer once as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that really stuck with me is, you know, you better know what some of their key issues are before you make the first call. You better understand a little bit about their industry and specifically their situation. So sure. the questions sure. you're asking are helping them to either solve a problem or improve their situation. Uh, not helping you just get smart about uh, wh what's going on. Right. So I think we have to be more educated, more uh, in tune, and and really be prepared to have a meaningful discussion that's going to help our customer uh, or prospect move forward as opposed to just educating us on what they do. Well, right. I think that's really a, a great point to make for people to think about discovery calls as purely a vehicle for you as a salesperson to get smart about the customer is their expectation is increasingly, and I think you hit it nail on the head, is that you're smart before you talk to them. And if you're not, then yeah, they don't really have time to educate you. Yeah, we better bring a few insights, you know, a few nuggets with us uh, to that call that has them stop and think, wow, you know, that was a really good question, or I hadn't really thought about mm -hmm. that before. Or it's interesting that you did that for somebody else in my industry. Right. You know, now you've piqued my interest. And, you know, with great uh, research tools and the Internet and social media, we can find out some of those connection points before we make that first engagement. And I'm not talking about hours and hours, but just taking that time to be a little bit more informed. And guess what? The good news is most of the competition isn't doing that. Uh, so you can stand <laughs> Unfortunately, out. Unfortunately, yes, that's true, yourself. right? Yeah, by the way that you engage. Yeah. No, I said it's unfortunate most competitors aren't. and and But it's really the inverse of what the customer is doing, as you talked about before, in terms of customers being smarter. They're using the same tools to find out about you and the options that they have and potential solutions to the challenges they have and the goals they want to meet. You're just using the same tools to find out about them. I mean, it's not, it's not a mystery. Absolutely. And you better be a few steps ahead of where they are, even though they're engaging much further along in the sales process uh, than you know, maybe they used to. And they used to rely on the salespeople for that sure. information, right? To be the, the walking and talking brochure. But now they can get all of that online. They can probably figure out what you do, who you've done it for, and maybe even how much other paid for your services. Sure. So you better have something else that, uh, that helps to break, break you out from the noise. Yeah, I mean, there's a great book I've referenced a couple times on the show recently called uh, Absolute Value. And written hmm. by two professors out of Stanford, I call them sort of the heirs to Kahneman and Sversky, but Sversky's, but um, about you know behavioral economics and psychology and the like. And what their definition of absolute value is is that these days customers have the ability through the tools that are available online to them and the resources available online to really sort of almost understand what you know economists call the experienced value of a product or service, meaning the value they'd receive from it get a pretty perfect understanding of that before they ever engage with the, the seller. So it's not just that they, they are smarter about products in general, that in many cases, you know, the customers actually have a pretty good sense of what's going to be like to use your product even before they, you engage with them. Absolutely. And, you know, one other interesting aspect to that, Andy, is, uh, you know, when people say, well, does that mean the salesperson is going to go away? You know, is, is the, the role of the sales professional dead? And I think just just the contrary. I Me think too. what that means is the salesperson needs to be that much better and needs to do a better job at solving problems and being that advisor 
than just being the brochure that they can go and get online or they can find out elsewhere. So I think we need to differentiate ourselves by the way that we engage and Absolutely. how we sell in addition to our products and services. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And that was yeah, my first book was all about <laughs> that concept. That's right about yeah. how you sell, not what you sell in terms right. of differentiating yourself. So one of the keys to this, and we wanted to have a conversation about sales training, is mm-hmm. is training and getting our people more educated, our salespeople more educated, more in tune with the customers. And you wrote an article recently about you know six reasons why corporate sales training failed. But one of the article, one of the facts you cite in there is this two point two billion dollars spent in in the U.S. or North America, I guess, on sales training each year and. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the general level of satisfaction with the results is not very high. I mean, at least from the articles that I've read and the research I've seen, that you know, CEOs, I remember one research report a couple of years ago, like 67, 70% of CEOs said, I'm not sure why we still do this because we don't get any ROI on it. Right, right. I, yeah, I think there are two things going on there. Um, one is we haven't asked the question in the right way to determine if we are getting ROI. You know, do we know what success looks like? And mm-hmm. that's one of the points we'll get to in the article. Sure. Um, the other thing is, yeah, I, I think we often go through the motions and, and it kind of the training becomes an end to itself as opposed to a means that we're using to solve some other uh, problem or accomplish something in the organization. So I think often it's really hard to look back and say, yes, this was effective and here's why. Well, yeah. I mean, I think most companies, as you said, treat it as an obligation, as a box to be checked. Yeah, we've got some money in the budget for sales training this year. Let's use it without really thinking about, okay, what's really the best way for us to use this money? I mean, I had a a client recently that had a similar conversation. It was like, okay, well, here's what we should be doing. And they said, yep, great idea. But, uh, you know, we had already sort of said we're going to spend it on this. And it's like, Okay, but that's not going to give you what you really want. But they were just bound and determined to spend the money. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And again, um, why why was that money set aside, and what did we think was going to happen? And for that two point two billion dollars, you know, what should we be getting? You know, what would a reasonable return be if we were able to really satisfy those objectives? Well, I think we could argue that two point two billion isn't enough if done appropriately. I mean, I think this number I heard uh, from talking to a gentleman, a guest on the show, Frank Cespedes, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, I think it was total expenditure U.S. each year on sales is $90 billion on sales. So we're saying, okay, roughly 2% of that is spent on training, which <laughs> in any other case would seem laughably low. Right, right. That's percentage no, that you're that- spending on developing your employees, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and if what we're really talking about is allowing us to compete and win more successfully, then that's at the heart. I mean, it's at the heart of their job, but it's also at the heart of what the business is trying to accomplish. And so that is a driver of success. That's, that's more than just a, right. a training obligation, as you mentioned. So how do we start changing the culture around that? Because, I mean, clearly it's a systemic problem that starts at the top is that, and as for as long as I've been in sales, which... Yeah, maybe it's a little bit longer than you, but it's it's been a while. Um, it's never changed. You know, the, the seriousness with which most organizations treat it, relatively low. I mean, there's exceptions, obviously. Some organizations do a great job, a real commitment to a learning uh, culture and a learning environment for, for sales and for all the departments. But in the main, most companies don't. And so what's your thought about how we, how we start 
making a dent in this culture and sort of turning the ship around. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's a great place to uh, start and and to ask that question um, because we need to tie it again back to that, the problem that we're solving. And I think we've often misdiagnosed the problem. So, so we get this all the time as as an example. um, Misdiagnosed the problem in terms of what sales training is supposed to fix. About, yes. Thank you for, for clarifying that. Um, You know, we, we may get the, the question, well, our people need to be better at negotiating and closing. Right. And so that that's what they say that they're they're trying to accomplish. And when you peel back that onion and say, well, why is that? Um, It may be because we haven't engaged and learned enough about the problem that that we're trying to solve for our customer. Exactly. uh, So that when they get in to close, the customer saying, well, you know, you're not really fixing what I'm what I'm, you know, the scratch that I have to itch. Um, or we may just not have engaged at a level that really makes us that that advisor. So, yeah, the rapport wasn't built. The trust wasn't built. Yeah, right. I, I see people endgaming it all the time. So when you wrote your article about the six reasons corporate why corporate sales training fails, that misdiagnosing the problem was was actually your your first one. Um, and what you're saying is that you know people just aren't clear about what the objective is, and perhaps even don't break it down far enough. I think as you're saying, as they see sort of a top level uh, outcome related issue that they want to change, but they don't really look at the the fundamentals beneath it. Absolutely. And I, I think it was really tied to the second point in the article uh, that if we don't have the stakeholders involved, so, you know, in sales training cases that the VP of sales or the chief revenue officer, chief sales officer, if they or their team and staff doesn't have input into defining that, then oftentimes we roll out sales training, it checks the box and we can get huge satisfaction, you know, ratings. And the salespeople said, yeah, that was the best training I ever had. But then the CRO or, or CSO goes, well, we didn't, we didn't affect our sales outcome this year. Right. Or we didn't improve, you know, we haven't grown the number of opportunities. We haven't improved our close rates. We haven't gotten higher margins. You know, what are those specific outcomes that we're looking for? Um, so we think that it, those two are very tied together. We need to have those stakeholders involved. And it's like with any change initiative, if we don't have that leadership involved mm-hmm. as part of defining the problem and then helping to communicate and set those expectations, um, we run the risk of really you know, solving the wrong, wrong problem or, or not addressing the need. But increasingly, isn't one of the, the challenges or maybe the issues with sales training is really how it's delivered? I mean, too often now, again, most companies, it's about, hey, twice a year, we're going to go hire sales readiness group, or we're going to hire Andy Paul to come in and give a keynote address. And, you know, for two hours, they feel like, okay, we checked the box. We, you know, we fulfilled our obligation. You guys are now smart, you know, because you listened to somebody's talk for two hours or, you know, listened, went through a one day workshop with you guys. And that's structurally, that's a problem, right? Because, you know, they're not, you need to be able to reinforce it. You need to have it, uh, uh, you know, the changes adopted at the rate that, that people can swallow it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the biggest, uh, maybe historical problems with that is, is training was seen as an event. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a two day session. We're going to fly everybody to San Diego, you know, and, and we're going to have some corporate meetings and we're going to do two days of training and everybody's going to leave and they're going to be smarter. And, you know, the question I always like to ask is what's going to happen on Monday when they get back into the field, what's going to be different? What commitments are they making? And what's going to go on over the next six months to ensure that they actually apply those skills and they use the tools and that there is, as you mentioned, the reinforcement and, and follow up. 
And so I think if we look at training as a mechanism for behavior change, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, book smart or, hey, they can they can take a knowledge test and show that uh, we transferred some knowledge that that doesn't make the end game or doesn't uh, accomplish that objective. I think we need to make sure that we're working on a program that changes behavior which may look like an initial training event, but then looks like ongoing reinforcement and specifically coaching and follow-up by the manager to make sure they're doing things differently. Yeah, I mean, the key to any sort of behavior change is repetition. So, yeah, having a one-time event, if it's not tied to some sort of, you said, ongoing coaching, ongoing implementation within the field, uh, you know, increasingly you see some new mobile platforms that are coming out that people are using in some of the larger enterprises, yeah, unless people are engaging with the content frequently and and trying to put into practice on a regular basis what they're learned. Yeah, it's just, I think Xerox, you know, talked about years and years ago with the, even in their own incredible training centers that they had back in Virginia and other places is that their surveys were that their students forgot, what, 90% of what they learned within the first month. And that's just, we're just humans. That's going to happen. Right, absolutely. And especially if there isn't some expectation and mechanism um, you know, one of the things we like to do is at the conclusion of that, uh, if it is an in-person workshop, there needs to be a clear commitment. And in fact, the participants need to write down, need to script that out and say, here's what I'm going to do. And also they know that, oh, 30 days from now or three weeks, 30 mm-hmm. days from now, there's going to be a follow-up session. And I'm going to be expected to come in having applied these skills and right. be prepared to talk about it, bring in a case study or bring in a call planner or bring in a negotiation plan, whatever that that skill is, and be able to talk about it. And for our managers, they need to have gone on a coaching call and come in and mm-hmm. be prepared to talk about how that coaching call went. Well, now you both have the accountability and you have some real things to talk about as opposed to just going back over the slides or right. uh, you know presenting material. And one of the key reasons, again, back to what we talked about before, that, that that doesn't happen is that companies are skimping on their budget for training. You know, I think until you see this sort of fundamental mind shift from away from an event, as you said, to a curriculum, an ongoing, you know, day after day, week after week curriculum that companies embrace for educating their sales teams, we're always going to be stuck in this, this rut of uh, sort of stop and start. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think if, unless we rethink that, and it, in some cases it may take a larger commitment, but you think of the sure. cost of that training fail failing, you know, what's the, what's the true cost of that right. versus the benefit or the, the impact of getting it right. Right. And you know, the, the uh, significant ROI that would be associated with that, you know, we, we really need to look at how do we do that successfully? And if that means we need to extend it out over a period of six months, you know, let, let's look at what it's going to take. And as you mentioned, you know, there's now technology and tools and ways that we can do that without, you know, flying everybody back in and, and getting together, um, you know, every three months or something. We can use virtual uh, technology mm-hmm. as we do, you know, the virtual classroom. Um, we're all also partners with uh, uh, organizations that provide mobile and ongoing incremental learning right. so that we can deliver those out uh, to the mobile device and and have that reinforced that spaced reinforcement where it stays top of mind and the research suggests that hey even just the fact that we're having to apply those skills every couple of days mm-hmm. uh, improves our retention and and actually oh, helps yeah. create behavior change well that's why i said the behavior change i think is really the critical thing i think about what uh, 
I don't know, like QStream is doing with their QStream with the big pharma companies, you know, where they create the scenarios and every, and they're pretty contextual actually. So the reps, you know, yeah. they're getting something that, that makes sense for what they're doing on their phone. And it takes three minutes, as you said, it's just minutes. It takes like three minutes a day when they have to do it. But it's that reminder, it's that reinforcement. They're then going to think on their next call, oh yeah, I should be doing that, right? And that's going to get people educated. And I, and I think it seems to me like tying back to one of the points you had made about solutions oftentimes being too complex that we're trying to train <laughs> is that we miss the ball by, um, well, through the complexity and, and focusing really on, I, I call it some more advanced skills as opposed to just fundamental behaviors. Yeah, I, I talked to hundreds of CEOs and sales leaders and so on as, as part of doing the show. And, and one of the most consistent themes I hear about problems that, that they see CEOs find in their own organizations is, yeah, when the person actually gets face-to-face with the other person or on the phone with the other person is, is the inability to engage in a meaningful way, and they're spending all this money to make it happen, um, is the, one of the biggest problems they have. And it's like, it seems like we, we get in a sales training, we're teaching at a higher level than that, when we should be still just make sure everybody, no matter how senior they are, in my mind, would benefit more from you know, reinforcing that training as opposed to going to elevated skill training. Absolutely. And, you know, we use some sports analogies uh, uh, time and again uh, <laughs> in, in training. And I think here, though, it's, it's very applicable uh, about those fundamentals, right? You know, when you look at the best athletes, choose your sport, but the best athletes in, in any uh, endeavor, it's those fundamentals that make them great. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they practice those fundamentals every day, right? right? They go to the batting cage, the driving range, they go out to the pitch or the rink or whatever right. and they're practicing. And I think with our sales professionals, we often think, okay, they've been through training. Now they've got it. And, you know, as, as I like to joke, if we're having them practice in front of the customer, that's a really expensive way to do training. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And I sort of get back. I tell people, I said, you know, if if you gave me a choice between hiring somebody who who I thought was and could prove was you know extremely responsive you know responsiveness was their thing versus someone that was really sort of highly skilled maybe in giving a presentation you know I'd, I'd go with the fundamental behavior the responsiveness all day long I'd, I'd kill the I'd kill the other person if I had the responsive person. <laughs> Right. And and those are things that that build the rapport with the customers. Those are things that start the engagement, to build trust. And I just feel like we shortcut that too often. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we, yeah, we either gloss over it or there isn't enough time to practice and and to continue to reinforce. And as you mentioned with QStream, we're actually a QStream partner. So, mm-hmm. so uh, as you mentioned that, I uh, definitely resonated that sure. being able to continue to apply and doing it in kind of a fun way where you're, you know, maybe competing with your peers a little bit, right. but you're applying it to a scenario as opposed to feeling like you're being tested. And now, you know, even a question like, okay, what, what might you do in this situation mm-hmm. to continue to build rapport or to engage or what kind of questions would you ask? You know, those are great, great ways of reinforcing those key skills. All right. So well, the last, last point about your six that we've already covered, which was the fact there are no reinforcement programs in place. Um, but I had some on my own list of reasons mm-hmm. why corporate sales training fails. So, and I just wanted to run through some of those with you. So the first one is, is no one's directly held responsible for the results of sales training. I mean, it's, it's, it has to be somebody's job. If it was someone's job to be responsible for the outcomes of sales training, 
And you know, if they got fired, if those outcomes weren't weren't there, I think we would have seen a change a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I sort of think about you get the sports analogy, and I was thinking it sort of in the context of you know the NC2A now for all of its flaws. Uh, you know, has this uh, APR rating or academic progress rating that they rate mm-hmm. all the Division One schools on in terms of it's like an aggregate score of you know, how well they're doing in the classroom and the attendance and, and actually it's progress toward graduation, I guess is the, the metric. Right. Right. But yeah, there's someone in each athletic program that's responsible for that score. And you know, if the scores don't get better, there's problems. And so it seems like until we have some sort of, <laughs> I don't know if it's an aggregate measure of, of performance on a sales team, but it has to be something there where, where there's a way to measure collectively whether it's whether it's effective or not, and somebody is on the hook for it. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think it relates to you know one of the other points, which is, do we know what this is trying to accomplish, and do we know what we're going to measure? Mm-hmm. You know, six months from now, what what's going to be different? And I think when we look at you know the classical uh, Kirkpatrick model of measurement, you know, did they enjoy it? Did they learn anything? Are they applying it? And is it making a business, you know, difference or, or providing business results? I think we're pretty good at the first two. You know, we can measure if they like the training and we get good satisfaction scores right. and we can test them. But as we said, the knowledge itself doesn't mean that they're going to do anything with it. And and salespeople as a whole, at least my experience, don't appreciate that anyway. And, you know, now you're <laughs> going to give me a, a test after this. Um, well, yeah, that's that's one of the the cultural things that that needs to be worked on as well. Because that's one of my last points I was going to get to is is that we some companies do a good job of this, but again, by and large, most companies don't focus on creating this learning environment. And unfortunately, for salespeople, you know, there's a big portion of the onus of them developing professionally is put on them personally in their personal time. I mean, training notwithstanding, you know, if you say. I mean, I started a program with with a couple of clients this last year, or this year, excuse me. We're recording in 2016. This will air in 2017. But but um, where we created a, a reading curriculum with a bunch of ongoing coaching and, and so on. But in order to enroll in the program, the client had to agree to set aside 20 minutes a day during the workday for their sales team to read and engage in this curriculum. And... You wouldn't believe how, when I tell people about this, how many sales leaders say, what? <laughs> we never give time during the day for our guys to get smart. And it's like, seriously? Right. I mean, right. you'll you'll spend you know, a day and you'll bring in somebody for $30,000 to run a workshop. But you know, we were running this program for you know, a little over $10,000. And, and people in the course of a year, they read 11 books they would never have read before. To educate them about sales and decision making and and the buyers and so on, and all it took was an investment of twenty minutes a day. Yeah, I think that's a great example of a, you know getting those commitments and also somebody saying this is important and I'm going to sponsor it. You know, back to the are the stakeholders involved and and are they visible and are they making a point and to the you know question of who's really held responsible. If that's the VP of sales or chief sales officer saying we want this to be successful, they'll make those kind of commitments. If they're leading, leaving it, unfortunately, to a learning and development professional mm-hmm. or a sales enablement professional and saying, hey, we didn't get our ROI back, 
I don't think that's fair, right? I, I don't think you've set right. them up to be successful if you're not going to get the kind of sponsorship that you need. And so I think we really need to look back and say, you know, again, what are we expecting to happen differently? Do we have the executives involved? And the one other point um, I guess I'll make on that is, are we engaging and holding the managers responsible for the success of their team Mm -hmm. applying these concepts? Sure. Because the trainer can't be out in the field with them. And even if you have, you know, internal coaches, there aren't enough of them to be out there. The manager needs to be, as another blog I wrote, the chief training officer, right? They need to assume that responsibility of, aside from corporate training, I'm going to do things like have them read a blog article every week, or I'm going to do a session in my team meeting where we're going to role play objectives or objections that come up, and we're going to simulate that environment. You know, I think the manager then needs to be the one who ultimately sees it through. And they're only going to do it if the executives are saying, yes, this is part of our change program. Exactly. It's part of our overall you know, implementation. And guess what? It's important. And if you don't do it, there are consequences for not doing that. Yeah. And I, I would like to see the whole area changed in terms of how we even name it is instead of saying sales training, it's sales education. Because... Yeah, we have a, con- a commitment to continuously educating our people and training, again, smacks of event-oriented um, yeah. type events, <laughs> to be redundant. And both education yeah. and, yeah, I've interviewed a number of CEOs in the show that have done, just as I've done with these clients, is, yeah, they set aside time during the day because it's saying, we know if we tell a, a salesperson, look, read this blog article tonight and we're going to talk about tomorrow, we're saying we're giving you an assignment to go read it at home. And how important is it to us if we think you're going to go read it at home? As opposed to saying, look, we're going to take a little bit of our day and we're going to devote it to making us smarter about what you do. Yeah. And the ROI to me on that, again, anecdotally, pretty significant. Yeah. And, and I think it sets a tone as well that it's important that we're investing. Exactly. And I think, you know, regardless, and, and you could look at millennials and say, okay, well, you know, that uh, development and mastery is really important to them. I think it crosses generations, right? Mm -hmm. I think all of us would feel like, wow, they're investing in me. They're making this important. And I have a chance to improve my skills, whether I stay here for 30 years or, you know, six months. uh, This is something that's helping me improve. Absolutely. You know, now there's more engagement. Uh, I think it helps from a cultural standpoint. Oh, I agree. Yeah, it, it starts at the top. And just can't be afraid to use some of the time that you have these people. I mean, <laughs> statistics are what? Sales reps on average spend roughly a third of their time actually engaged with customers. Um, and we could all say, yeah, we'd love to see that number higher. But you know, there's a number of factors that play into why that number isn't larger and how hard it is to make it higher. But be that as it may, it means there's time during the day that's not taken away from talking to customers that could be used for professional development, educating right. these people. Right. Let's use it. Um, Okay. So, Ray, we've got the last segment of the show. I've got that standard questions I ask all my guests. And first one is a hypothetical scenario where you, Ray, have just been hired as VP of sales by a company whose sales have sort of hit the skids. And uh, the reset button needs to be hit. Sales turnaround put into place. So, what two things would you do in your first week on the job as the new sales leader that could have the biggest impact? Well, well, I love that question. It, it's actually in line with a case study we use in our sales management curriculum. Uh-huh. And so 
I, I think it does. Uh, I, I think it's true, right? I mean, it's a true to true to life in terms of that's a challenge that uh, some of us have been thrust into, sure. or a realistic one, and one you need to get your arms around pretty quickly. And so, I, I guess I'd I'd uh, suggest two things immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, one is I would really want to engage the managers. So the sales leadership team, whether that's the directors and frontline managers mm-hmm. first to find out what's going on, you right. know, what, what, what is the situation, uh, with performance management, with coaching, you know, what are their skill sets? Are, are they really engaged? Because as we say, I would want to start with the frontline managers, mm-hmm. uh, cause that's where you're going to get the most leverage, right? If they have, right. you know, eight to 10 direct reports, well, let's affect that. Have they set expectations? Have they clarified what success looks like mm-hmm. for their team? Have they actually uh, put the metrics in place to track? And if right. there's a gap in performance, do they know what to do about it? Right. So I kind of want to under- understand, and that's how we approach our performance sure. management system, is any of that in place? Um, and then I'd also want to find uh, what we kind of refer to as a top performer analysis or top producer analysis. Mm-hmm. What are the good people doing that that's working? Right. And, you know, why aren't the others doing it? Right. So they're just that we have a couple of anomalies. We have some superstars and we need to go get more superstars or that a few people figured it out. Well, let's do that. Whether we engage somebody to do that analysis or maybe just some interviews, I want to understand really what the rock stars are doing right. And how do we replicate that, which might be through training, might be through better engagement with the managers, you know, what have you. But I, I guess those would be my two initial thoughts is one, how do we engage the managers better and how do we find out what the top performers are doing? All right. Excellent. Good answer. All right. So now I've got a few rapid fire questions. You can give me one word answers or you can elaborate if you wish. So the first one is when you, Ray, are out selling your services, what's your most powerful sales attribute? You personally. So I'm going to give two, I guess, but they're tied together. Sure. (laughs) Um, No, I, I think uh, li- active listening skills mm-hmm. have got to be at the top of the list. And, and I do feel like, I mean, we get some pretty, pretty good feedback on that. Hey, you guys really listen to us. We appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So I think asking great questions and then shutting up <laughs> and, and, and listening Love it. and, and understanding, uh, and giving feedback, you know, paraphrasing all of those active listening techniques, um, both help with rapport, which you mentioned earlier, sure. but also help us really understand what's going on there and what's that problem that we uniquely now can solve mm-hmm. in a different way than our, our competition. Okay. Um, so I guess that'd be at the top of the list for me. Excellent. All right. Next question. Who's your sales role model? Wow. Um, you know, I have a hard time answering that one. Um, you know, I certainly have seen organizations that, uh, that do it well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess I will... I will say when I've seen sales working effectively, and so I'm going to use the organizational uh, sure. uh, analogy, um, it's because they take sales as a discipline to your point of improving every day and also coaching the key skills. Mm-hmm. So the best organizations, and when I think about the best salespeople, it's because there is this culture of selling and the managers are out there riding along with the reps they're going on the field visits, they're mm-hmm. engaging with the customer, uh, and they're doing those things to say, this is a profession. In fact, this is at the top of the food chain, because unless we sell something, nothing's going to happen. Right. So we're going to make this important. So I guess I took that a little tangent, but the those generic are the kind of good sales, sales manager that I like, and absolutely, that okay. they're going to be able to lead that. All right. Yep. 
So um, what's one book you'd recommend that every salesperson read? Well, I, I, I think uh, self-serving aside, um, I, I'm a fan of our high impact sales manager book that we published <laughs> this year. Okay. But besides <laughs> one that you wrote, so, I should yeah. have caveated that. I'm sorry. Right. Right. Um, right. So, you know, and I, I'm going to go back cause there, I, I will say, and one of the reasons I'm hesitating is because there is so much noise out there. Sure. And every time I, I find a new sales book and I, you know, have most of them on my shelf and I get, you know, partway through and I think, well, okay, there's some good, good nuggets in here. And then there's a whole bunch of, of just noise or, you know, personal mm -hmm. opinions. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back a ways, maybe date myself a little bit, but, um, early on in my Anderson consulting career, mm -hmm. uh, I was given a copy and actually went through the seven habits uh, workshop, sure. Stephen Covey. Stephen Covey. Yeah. And, uh, it really changed the way I thought about a lot of things. And I think what's interesting is if we think about that from a sales paradigm, mm -hmm. you know, things like a win-win mm -hmm. things like seeking first to understand, you know, right. some of those four fundamental principles to me are, are still there, uh, you know, to this day. And I think are underlying a, a lot of what makes uh, a salesperson successful. So I guess that'd be on the top of sure. Well, I've, I recently wrote a blog post after our 300th episode. I compiled the results of this answers to this question. And the number one book recommended is Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. So, okay. Yeah. 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 Don't, don't have to worry about dating yourself since uh, yeah. that's number one by far. So, okay. Last question then is what music is on your playlist right now? Wow. So, um, I'll share a little bit about uh, about my playlist, but I have a, a, a pl playlist that I listen to quite often that's all 90 beats per minute because that's actually a good running pace. Yeah, yeah. And that means it goes from Pearl Jam to Stevie Wonder uh, to uh, various parts of jazz and, and blues. Uh, and it's probably one of the most eclectic lists. Uh, a lot of Earth, Wind & Fire, a little bit of Tower of Power, um, so it kind of crosses the whole gamut there. All right. So what sort of pace does that have you running at? Um, well, you know, you just make more steps, even if you're going slower. <laughs> so, uh, it's one of the keys to successful running, by the way, is it takes a lot of load off if you're making more steps. That's but, true. Uh, That's true. I, I've shortened my stride quite a bit as I've gotten older. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have run, uh, a, a number of marathons and was fortunate to run Boston a few years back. So, uh, had had to step up my pace a little bit for that one. Yeah, I was going to say to qualify, that's that's not a slow right. pace typically. So, right. well, good. Well, right. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. So, tell people how they can find out more about uh, you and connect with you and Sales Readiness Group. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show today. Um, so, uh, website is salesreadinessgroup.com. And you can read our blog there. So it's just slash blog. And that has uh, the article you mentioned that we published, I think, just last week, as well as a couple of others I'll mention uh, about, uh, you know, become the chief training officer of your team, uh, as well mm -hmm. as things a manager can do to help ensure uh, training successful before, during and after. So some of those key uh, key things uh, on Twitter as well. Ray, middle initial A, Makala. Uh, on Twitter and uh, yeah, reach out to us. Uh, we'd love to hear more and engage. And uh, again, appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for coming. And, and friends, thank you for spending time with us today. Really appreciate you spending the half hour or so with us as we listen to the conversation with Ray. And remember, 
As always, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your own success. And one way to do that is make sure you don't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Ray Makala, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So until next time, this is Andy Paul. Thanks for joining us. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.